And we come now to the time of proclamation of God's Word. And we find ourselves still in the Gospel of Matthew, the Gospel that is the Gospel of this High King, as Matthew presents Christ as the King of all, particularly the King of His people, but He is indeed the King of all that is. He is the Creator, the Ruler, the High King of Heaven. And so we come now to our sermon text in Matthew chapter 20, verses 17 through 28. And here we find Jesus continuing his march towards Jerusalem, towards that ultimate moment in redemptive history, the the crucifixion and the resurrection. Matthew 20, verse 17, we read these words. And as Jesus was going up to Jerusalem, he took the 12 disciples aside. And on the way, he said to them, see, we are going up to Jerusalem. And the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and scribes, and they will condemn him to death, and deliver him over to the Gentiles to be mocked and flogged and crucified, and he will be raised on the third day. Then the mother of the sons of Zebedee came up with him, with her sons, and kneeling before him, she asked him for something. And he said to her, What do you want? She said to him, Say that these two sons of mine are to sit, one at your right hand and one at your left, in your kingdom. Jesus answered, You do not know what you are asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I am to drink? They said to him, We are able. And he said to them, You will drink my cup, but to sit at my right hand and at my left is not mine to grant but it is for those for whom it has been prepared by my father. And when the ten heard it, they were indignant at the two brothers. But Jesus called to them and said, You know that the rulers of the Gentiles lorded over them, and their great ones exercise authority over them. It shall not be so among you, but whoever would be great among you must be your servant And whoever would be first among you must be your slave, even as the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. And this is the word of the Lord. Father, I ask that you would bless our time as we consider what you have for us here this morning. I pray and ask, Lord, that you would... uh, Give us insight and understanding that your spirit would speak through me and we would see once again the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen. Serving others is such a noble idea. And when it comes down to actually doing it, though, we often find it rather difficult I mean, the psychology of service itself uh, betrays our fallen nature as humans, as, as sinners. And that's because when we serve other people, usually we don't serve out of a pure motive. Even our best intended efforts, when we, we peel back all the layers of our hearts, there's usually a tinge of a selfish motive that is there. We serve because, well, hey, it makes me feel pretty good about myself. We serve because it glorifies ourself in our own eyes. And Jesus understood this problem very well. In fact, we see 
especially recently, he's been having to address it again and again and again as it surfaces in the life of his first disciples. And here in our text this morning, we see it again. It's, it's becoming a recurrent pattern, a, a familiar theme. You almost want to say, kind of in an ungodly way, well, uh, Jesus, don't you have something else to talk about here? I mean, this, this idea of, of becoming low and, and of, of uh, serving others, it's coming up so often. But it's needed. It's needed because the gospel shows us that the kingdom of Christ is so different than the kingdom of this world. It, is, it, is, it has an inverted nature to it. It involves a fundamental change of how we see ourselves, our status, our standing. I mean, in earthly kingdoms, as we've seen again and again, rank and status and reputation and prestige, they are of vital importance. And and so to pursue the highest rank becomes the goal, the essence of life itself. In the world's kingdom, we serve others or we make sacrifices Ultimately, to serve ourself, to achieve that better position, that higher standing. But in God's kingdom, it is those who humble themselves, those that are uh, brought down, that repent, that are lifted up to the highest level. Those who become like little children, as we have seen here and recently in Matthew, those are the ones who are the greatest. And so again, we find Jesus here in this text needing to address this inherent selfishness in his disciples' hearts. And if these guys, these first disciples who physically walked with Jesus, they heard him preach and teach regularly, they worshipped with him, they sat at his feet, if these guys still struggle with this pride and this selfishness, well, certainly those of us Uh, now ought to consider our hearts as well. What we see here in our text this time, it is two brothers, James and John, who are still thinking about the kingdom of heaven as if it is a human kingdom. They're thinking about it the wrong way. And we're introduced in verse 20 to a woman. Her name isn't given to us, but her role is. She is the mother of the sons of Zebedee. This would be James and John. And James and John, of course, were two of the first of Jesus' disciples. And so she comes with them, and she falls on her knees before Jesus. And we should note that she is taking a position designed to uh, show subjection to a king, to an authority. She is showing honor to Christ. And that tells us she did see Jesus for who he was. She understood he is the high king, that he is the Messiah, the deliverer of God's people. And she will submit to him as her king and Lord as she brings this request. She also understands that Christ as that king is establishing a kingdom, the kingdom of heaven, the kingdom of God, in order that he might fulfill all the prophecies of Scripture. She believes that by following Christ, she and her sons are to have a part in this kingdom, as we see in her request. 
And it is on the basis of all that truth that she comes to Jesus with this request. But it is the nature of that request that betrays the fact that James and John and their mother as well are still thinking of the kingdom of heaven as if it were an earthly kingdom. And so we read in verse 21, Jesus says to her, what do you want? And she said to him, say that these two sons of mine are to sit one at your right hand and one at your left in your kingdom. Now, these seats at the right hand and the left hand of a king or a ruler in the ancient world were the seats of influence and power. Uh, It would be a a position sort of like that of vice president. So James, John, uh, they know that Jesus is king. They believe that. They've been following him as his disciples. They knew that they were not to be the high king, that this was Jesus but they could come then maybe alongside him as lesser kings and take that role at the right and the left. See, earthly kingdoms are driven by a sense of wanting power and control. And it doesn't matter what kind of earthly kingdom it is. It can be a real literal kingdom, a nation state or it can be uh, the corporate boardroom. It could be uh, just the, the, the childhood politics on the playground, if you've ever grown up and, and experienced that. There's this sense of wanting to be in power and control. Earthly kingdoms are driven by that. But earthly kingdoms are also built on pride. I mean, later in the story, Jesus tells us how earthly kings, the kings of the Gentiles, build their power and influence. He says this in verse 25. He says to his disciples, You know that the rulers of the Gentiles, they lord it over them, and their great ones exercise authority over them. And this little illustration, uh, or with this little illustration, he's giving us again that contrast between the value systems of of the kingdom of, of the world and that of the kingdom of heaven. Gentiles here represent human order outside the people of God. Uh, This would be the way of the natural world. And he says, look, guys, you know how the world works. Not just factually, not just in your head, but you've experienced this. This is experiential knowledge. You know what earthly rulers do. I mean, after all, you as people of Israel have been under dominion and control of kingdom after kingdom after kingdom from the Babylonians, the Assyrians, the Persians, the Greeks, now the Romans. You know this is the way it works in the world. And of course, we understand that as well. We know how kingdoms, whatever kind of kingdom they are, function because we're all part of some form of kingdom You know, all human governments from the corporate boards to monarchies, even democratically elected ones, they all function this way. Jesus says earthly rulers both lord over and exercise authority over those beneath them. And the emphasis of both of these words that he uses is, is the idea of looking down upon those below and keeping them there. That's the natural order of uh, human order of things. 
And this way of looking down, it, it, it happens on all levels of human society. Here's the thing, though. Authority is actually a good thing. Because God created it. After all, he is God. He is authoritative. But like all God's things that are good gifts to us, we as fallen sinners take them and we corrupt them and we twist them in our sin and use them for our selfish benefit. And that's what Jesus is getting at here. Speaking of Gentile kings. We as humans have this innate desire to build up ourselves and in so doing push others down. And we expect that from the world. But Jesus tells us his kingdom is not like that. Of course, though, James and John were thinking in those terms that the kingdom of heaven was just like an earthly kingdom, but it's not. We, like James and John, are so often tempted to do the same thing. I mean, all too often, Christians think of Christ's kingdoms in in terms of reward. We focus on what we can get, what we gain from the gospel, rather than on focusing on the person who actually grants us those blessings. It's so easy to fall into the temptation to celebrate heaven rather than heaven's king. But doing that fails to recognize that heaven is only heaven. It is only a reward because of the one who reigns on its throne. Otherwise, it would be just like any earthly kingdom. The very reason God redeems his people for his name's sake is that he will receive the worship that he is due. Popular Christianity portrays the gospel as if it's like a gift card for cashing out blessings in your life, both now and for eternity. And while it is true that God in His mercy chooses to shower His goodness, His grace upon us through Christ, and we receive innumerable blessings both now and for eternity, the end goal of the gospel is never just that blessing that we receive. The end goal has always been about the worship of God Himself. And what is, what does the catechism ask? What is the chief end of man? And the answer, to glorify God and enjoy Him forever. To glorify God, that is to worship Him and to enjoy Him, to worship Him in the midst of that blessing He bestows upon us. And so the reward we receive, the blessing, is designed to lead us to our high calling of worshiping God. But when we make the reward the goal, rather than worship, we begin to to miss the very blessing of grace itself. And that's when we begin to start to think, well, hey, we need to gain that reward. And so I will do good things in an effort to get good things. And consequently, well, if I do bad things, I'm not going to get the good things. And what that appeals to is our own pride, the sin of pride within our hearts. But here's the thing. As Christians, as believers, and I put myself in this as well, we often try to to clean up our pride, to sanctify it in a sense, by dressing it up in piety. 
And that is where our service of others, when we, when we try to serve others, is, becomes rooted in self-service. I serve others so that I will gain a reward. And it's so easy to fall into that trap. It happens in so many ways. Pride has a wardrobe of garments that it puts on to try to hide itself, all sounding very pious, and all can actually be good things, but it's hiding that sin. And so, for example, we may do certain things and say certain things and act a particular way, all claiming that we're doing it in love to our neighbor, but underneath we're doing it because it appeals to our own sense of self-righteousness. Or we may be a champion of a particular cause or idea or truth, and we claim we are doing that for the good of others, but in reality... It serves our own selfish motive of wanting to be right. Let's see, sacrificial love, the love of the kingdom of heaven, is never self-serving. And if we lord over others our love or our liberty, we make them both invalid because what we're really trying to validate is ourself. And when we do that, we're treating the kingdom of God just like James and John were, as if it were simply another kingdom amongst the kingdoms of men. We're lording over others like the Gentiles, like the pagans, like those outside of God's covenant grace. We're building our kingdom in the name of the kingdom of Christ. And, and what happens when we do that, when we pursue our own glory well, look at verse 24. We get an example of it. When the ten heard it, that's the other disciples, when they heard what James and John had asked through their mother, they were indignant at the two brothers. And after they hear this request uh, through their mother of James and John, boy, they were, they were seeing red. You can almost hear the conversation, can't you? I mean, James, John, what are you guys thinking? I mean, who are you to make this request? And did you really have to go get your mom to make it for you? I mean, what gives you the right to ask for power and authority over the rest of us? Who do you guys, do you think you're better than us? What have you done to earn seats at the right hand and the left hand of Jesus? I mean, you can almost hear Peter in that. Guys, I got out of the boat in a storm and tried to walk to Jesus. I mean, if anything, I think I deserve that right-handed seat. Here's the interesting thing, though. As these disciples are growing angry at the sons of Zebedee, they are showing us that they have the exact same problem as James and John, this heart of selfish pride. They thought that the king... that. They too had a right to ask for the thrones at the right and the left, the positions of highest authority. They thought that they should earn this reward as well. But Jesus shows us something different. He shows us that the kingdom of heaven isn't structured like the kingdoms of men. While Gentiles will lord over their subjects, Jesus was willing to become a true servant by sacrificing himself for his people. You see, the gospel changes everything. Jesus builds his kingdom by becoming a servant 
and sacrificing himself for others. And he speaks of a great cup of suffering of which he will drink. After James and John make that request through their mother, Jesus says in verse 22, you don't know what you're asking. Are you really able to drink of this cup that I am to drink? Well, what is this cup that he's speaking of? In the Bible, the, the image of a cup is, is a metaphor for, for various things. Uh, for example, when we read in the Psalms, we will see that, that uh, God pours out his gracious benefits on his people like a cup of blessing that is running over. But also, a cup in the scriptures is used to portray the judgment of God being poured about upon the rebellious earth. And also, the scriptures talk about a bitter cup of suffering. And that is exactly what Jesus has in mind here. In verses 18 and 19, Jesus tells us what the contents of this cup of suffering are. He says, see, we are going up to Jerusalem and the son of man will be delivered over to the chief priests and scribes and they will condemn him to death and deliver him over to the Gentiles to be mocked and flogged and crucified and he will be raised up on the third day. This is the third time we've seen Jesus prophesy of his coming death. But this time is a little different. Because here he begins to unpack all the details of exactly what will happen to him. He says, first, he will be handed over to the chief priests and scribes. This is his betrayal by the hand of Judas and his ultimate arrest. I mean, one of his own disciples, one of the inner circle, one of his friends will turn his back on him and turn him over to the religious authorities as he is enticed by the glitter of gold, the power of the purse. But he will not only be arrested under these false charges, Jesus says, I will be condemned to death. He'll be declared guilty, though he had committed no crime. And then he says, I'll be handed over to the Gentiles, meaning in this case, of course, the Romans, whom will brutally beat him with the infamous uh, Roman flagrum, a whip that is designed to cause maximum pain and severely weaken the human body. Jesus also says that he's going to be mocked by these Gentiles. And this would be unthinkable to these early disciples to have the Jewish Messiah, the king who is to fulfill the promises long spoken by David, to take up the throne and sit upon it forever, to have him mocked by these outsiders, these Gentiles. As Jesus would be mocked, it would feel as if their hopes would also be mocked with him. And then, of course, Christ speaks of the last drop of suffering in that cup that he will drink down will be the crucifixion. As the Son of God, we'll hang on a cruel cross of wood, fastened to it by nails driven through his hands and his feet. He would hang there, choking, struggling to breathe, gasping for air, every breath bringing on a new wave of unbearable pain. 
This is the cup of bitterness he will drink, the cup of bitter suffering. And he did drink it. He drank that cup of suffering in service for others rather than serving himself. In fact, we see that heart of service reflected even in the taunts of those chief priests who said to him as he hung on the cross, well, he said that he could save others, but himself he could not save. If you're really the king, if you really have power and authority, why don't you show us? Why don't you lord it over us and come down off that cross? But he didn't. He gave himself. He bore the sting and the shame in service of others so that he would become, as we see here in our text this morning, a ransom for many. Verse 28, Jesus says, The Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. And when we hear that word ransom, what we probably think of is the context of uh, kidnapping, right? I mean, you've probably seen movies and read books about kidnapping and how some high-profile target is, is abducted and, um, by those who, who want uh, riches and they, they demand an exorbitant amount of money for the release of that person. And that's actually not far off um, from the biblical use and understanding of this word ransom. You see, a ransom was a purchase price. It was the price for a prisoner, someone who was a prisoner, or, or a slave. And it was to buy their freedom. It was the means by which a person was redeemed and delivered from bondage. And Jesus says that he, as the son of man, as the king who had been promised for generations, the great deliverer, he would give himself, his very life, as the ransom price for many. He would become the purchase price, the just for the unjust, the king for his subjects. And in becoming the ransom for many, he would fulfill the words that the Lord spoke through the mouth of the prophet Isaiah in Isaiah 53. Out of the anguish of his soul he shall see and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, he's speaking of Christ here, make many to be accounted righteous, and he shall bear their iniquities. Therefore I will divide him a portion with the many, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong, because he poured out his soul to death and was numbered with the transgressors. Yet he bore the sin of many and makes intercession for the transgressors. Who are the many? Well, the many are all the people All those that God will bring into his kingdom, each and every citizen of his kingdom that he brings to himself will be atoned for by the blood of Christ, not one that he has chosen to say will miss out. They will have their sins, the chains that hold them broken. What are those chains? What are those chains that bind us, that need breaking? Well, they are the chains of Adam's rebellion in the garden. They are 
the chains of, of Noah's drunkenness. They, they are the chains of Abraham's deceit and David's adultery. They are the chains of Solomon's lust and James and John's selfish pride. They are the chains of Peter's denial and Paul's murder. But they are also the chains, the chains that Jesus breaks. They are also the chains of my pride and yours. Those chains are our anger, our bitterness, our jealousy, our hate, our sexual sins, our self-righteousness, our judgmentalism, our lies, our failure to love our neighbors, our failure to worship God. Every single one of our sinful failures, past, present, and future, those are the chains that Christ breaks as he gives himself as the ransom for many. And we who are in Christ. By grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, we are the many, the ransomed ones. Chains of sin and death and hell, they lie shattered at the foot of the crucified and risen Jesus. You see, we could could never accomplish that ourselves. We could never free ourselves from this prideful pursuit of our own glory We needed Jesus to become this servant, to become this sacrifice. Kingdoms of this world are indeed built by lording over others, by oppression and tyranny, by the self-serving pursuit of power. But the kingdom of heaven is built through the service and sacrifice of its king, Jesus himself. And that's the good news. That's the gospel And here's what that means for us. Here's how it actually affects us in the already and not yet. Because Jesus has freed his people from their selfishness and their pride by becoming our servant and sacrificing himself as our ransom, we are now free to serve others in sacrificial love. Jesus' sacrifice as a ransom for many already ensures us that the ultimate reward has been secured. We are made part of the kingdom and there's no reason then to ask for a throne. We've already been promised a crown of life. And so we can lay aside the self-righteous pride, lay it down in repentance and rest in the reality that Jesus has freed us. Christ is the only true servant which means that if we truly want to serve others, we must be united to him. Even if that service means that we may be called upon to suffer, to sacrifice for the sake of others. When Jesus asked the sons of Zebedee if they could drink from his cup, they, of course, reply very enthusiastically, yes, we will drink. We will drink from your cup. And of course, they, they don't understand the, the full ramifications of, of what Jesus was asking at that time. They would, they would, as James and John would be amongst some of the first martyrs for the gospel. Nevertheless, Jesus says to them, you're right, you will, you will drink my cup. You will suffer as I suffer. Now, Jesus isn't saying you will become a ransom for many. 
That is exclusive. That is limited to Christ. But what he is saying is that following Christ and serving others means that you may be called upon to sacrifice yourself in love for their sake, for the sake of the kingdom. But if Jesus drank his cup, we can drink it too. And there's no doubt that here in the West, in the United States, we have enjoyed times of plenty, easy times, good times, times of liberty as believers. For many generations, we have been able to worship the Lord according to our consciences. And thankfully, we still can do that to some extent, even though we feel that perhaps things are changing, and they may very well change. We must realize that as believers, following Christ hasn't always been easy for God's people. I mean, Peter warns us we should not be surprised when the fiery trial comes. Being a disciple of Jesus is not a promise to have your best life now. In fact, it might be very hard. Certainly, we feel the winds of change blowing as a society becomes increasingly anti-Christian. But here's the good news, that if Christ suffered for us, we certainly can suffer for him so that the glory of his kingdom will continue to grow despite the hostility of the world. And one day, that kingdom will be complete and we will receive the reward of our suffering that Christ has won for us. You see, we don't have to worry about earning any reward because it's already been determined. We don't have to worry about what kind of throne we're going to sit on in the fulfilled kingdom because Jesus already sits upon the throne. God's sovereign prerogative determines what part of the kingdom is yours. There's no need then to worry about status It's already assured by his sovereign grace. That's what Jesus is getting at in verse 23 when he he tells James and John, you'll you'll drink of the cup, but to, to sit at my right hand and my left, it's not mine to grant, but it is for whom those it has been prepared by my Father. And that's meant to give us assurance. It assures us that God is preparing a place for us to sit with him in his presence forever. And so then let us, let us through the grace of the gospel actually seek to serve one another, to have the courage to sacrifice for one another, whatever that may be and whatever it might call us to do, even as our Lord came not to be served, but to serve others and give his life as a ransom for for many. Let us not seek a throne in the kingdom of heaven, but instead seek the king who already sits upon the throne of heaven's kingdom. Let us pray. Father in heaven, we're thankful for your word. We're thankful how it continually sheds light on our hearts and exposes the fact that we, just like James and John, we are often self-serving, clothing our pride in our piety, but really wanting the reward, the highest reward for ourselves. Father, we ask that you would forgive us when we do this and that you would help us to seek 
to live for others in this sacrificial, loving way as servants, looking to Christ who is our example. But Father, we thank you that when we do fail, when we do take up the mantle of pride and even mask it behind our piety, we're thankful that because Christ became a ransom, the chains of that that sin of pride is broken. And may we rest in the goodness and the grace of the gospel. We ask this all in Jesus' name. Amen.